0: The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. In the winter of 1997, Benjamin Kemp and his four younger siblings were taken from the custody of his parents and placed into foster care. They were homeless at the time and had survived years of child abuse, domestic violence, and neglect before the court intervened. Initially, the children were separated and split between two different homes. This was a common practice among large sibling groups at the time. After nearly a week apart, four of the five children were reunited and sent to live with the family some 60 miles away. They were placed with a middle-aged white couple that already had one foster youth and and at least one of their own teenagers still living in the house. Despite this, they still had room to take in four more children. So, when Benjamin and his siblings arrived, their life's possessions were thrown into several large trash bags and loaded into the house. And they slowly started to settle into their new home. Benjamin, who was the oldest, was angry and hurt. He didn't want to move, he didn't want to be away from his parents and friends, and he certainly didn't want to be in some stranger's house but there was nothing he could do about it, so he settled in, all the while defiantly waiting for his parents to come back. Days turned to weeks and weeks to months, and after a while, the children became better adjusted. After a year or so in foster care, the parental rights were terminated and the state began searching for an adoptive home. And after nearly two years in foster care, all four children were adopted by their foster family and each had their last name changed, And in case you're wondering about the fifth sibling, that sibling was adopted too by the foster home that took him in. And as you've probably guessed by now, this story is a familiar one. It's my story. It sounds almost ideal, doesn't it? In some ways it is, but that's exactly why I'm sharing it. My experience is far from typical. Every year, thousands of children are sent back into abusive homes, unnecessarily separated from their parents, or even abused while in foster care. We have a system that is failing our youth, and more often than not, it's affecting black and brown families disproportionately. This is episode four of the What Would It Take podcast. This week we're exploring the question, what would it take to keep our families together? Listen in. Before I jump into the data, let me say that I don't have answers for you this week. This issue is incredibly complex and, as you might have guessed, it's also deeply personal. So as much as I want to wrap things up in a neat little package with every episode, that won't happen today. Instead, I'll share some of the issues plaguing foster care, offer a few suggestions on how to address the problems, and then invite you to continue to wrestle and research for yourself. I also want to name that it isn't only that my personal experience in foster care shapes how I understand this issue. It's that after I was adopted, my parents continued to foster children. So I've known well over 30 other foster children throughout my lifetime, and probably more. Some of them were with us for a few weeks, others for a few years. They became family. In some instances, they were removed and sent back to the unsafe environments that they came from, only to return later. And that was always heartbreaking. Also, it's important to note that I spent a summer in 2010 working for a foster agency called La Casa de Esperanza in Houston. I worked each day as a foster parent and saw the difficulties of living like that firsthand. I saw the emphasis on removal and speedy adoptions play out time and again, and I've seen adoptions fall through, leaving children unsettled and hurting. I've seen a lot of children move in and out of foster care. I've heard stories of kids being sent back into abusive homes because the state prioritizes family reunification and I know people who experienced worse abuse while in foster care than they did with their original families. Though my personal experiences definitely shape my perspective, I won't even pretend to deny that. What you're about to hear is based almost exclusively on the research I've done for this particular episode. And after decades of personal experience and hours of research, I can say with certainty there is no simple answer to the issues that plague foster care, nor is there a one-size-fits-all solution for our families. And if we're going to wrestle with this, we need to accept that. All right, let's dive in. Issue number one, the overrepresentation of black and brown youth. Black children, and native children in particular, are disproportionately represented in the foster care system. In 2013, black children made up over a quarter of all children in foster care, despite representing only 13% of the general population. That disparity is also true for Native youth who were in foster care at a rate double their proportion of the population. And it gets even worse in certain states. For example, in South Dakota, though Native American children were only 15% of the population, they comprised over half of the children in foster care. The question remains, why is that the case? How is that even possible? And the answer depends on who you ask. Some argue that black and native children, for instance, are at a greater risk for abuse and neglect than their white counterparts. If you're in that camp, you would say something like, the numbers don't lie. Those folks believe that children of color are simply more likely to deal with instances of child abuse and neglect, and therefore more likely to be placed into the foster care system. While that sounds good on paper, personally, I'm not buying it. And thankfully, I'm not alone. Others argue that socioeconomic status is actually a better predictor of a child's likelihood to interact with the foster care system. The worse the economic condition of the family, the higher the chances for abuse and neglect. It just so happens that Black and Native families also have much higher rates of poverty than white families do. So, according to this way of thinking, it tracks that we'd see higher rates of abuse and neglect because poverty is a heavy stressor, regardless of the racial or ethnic makeup of a family. So the issue is poverty, not the race of the families. Others look at the racist mistreatment of black and native people in this country and suspect that the current disparities are simply a continuation of that tradition. See, until the 1950s, the US foster care system was only for white children. Once black children began entering the system, foster care policies became more punitive and states began spending more money on out-of-home foster care instead of in-home services that would support families. For some reason, once state and local governments began interacting more heavily with black families, they decided that money was better spent removing children from the homes instead of putting resources into the homes to help the families address their supposed problems. Now, why would there be a shift in practice once black children started entering foster care? Hmm. You know what? I'll let you think about it and answer on your own. I'm kidding. The answer is obviously racism. I mean, come on. That is blatantly clear here. Now, when we think about native families in particular, the tradition of separation and cultural erasure is as old as democracy itself in this country. During the boarding school era in the U.S., which lasted for nearly 100 years, thousands of Native children were taken from their families and forced to live in military-style schools, which stripped them of their culture and subjected them to abuse and neglect. The mission was, and I quote, to kill the Indian and save the man. I cannot make this stuff up. Moreover, thousands of Native children were adopted into non-Native homes, thus contributing to the erasure of Native culture and people. Folks, this is our history, and against this backdrop, it's very difficult to make the case that the disproportionate rates of Black and Native children in foster care are the result of anything but continued and pervasive systemic racism. So, why are Black and Brown children more likely to end up in foster care? i think there are a variety of reasons but most of them are bound up in this issue of systemic racism i think black and brown families are more likely to deal with and and be oppressed by poverty mental illness and trauma, and thus are in greater need of assistance and social systems that can help undergird their families. Unfortunately, instead of getting that assistance that they need, they are often scrutinized due to the implicit bias present from law enforcement, social workers, people in educational professions, and even our healthcare system. That results in greater instances of child removal and more punitive actions taken against parents of color. Issue number two. Foster care has negative impacts on children, but particularly black and brown children. It's not just that black and native children are taken into foster care at higher rates than their white counterparts. It's also that they stay in foster care longer and are more likely to have parental rights terminated, are less likely to receive the mental health services they need, and less likely to be reunited with family members. If that wasn't bad enough, Foster care has been shown to correlate with increased school delinquency and teen birth rates, lower economic earnings, and higher incarceration rates, among other factors. In short, kids who remain in foster care for any length of time face significant hurdles to healthy readjustment later. Issue number three, the legal system. When dealing with custody disputes or cases of parental rights, the courts rely on the quote, best interest of the child principle, which is an intentionally vague rule designed to give judges flexibility in determining the outcome of any particular case by evaluating what is in the best interest of a child. It sounds straightforward, right? Well, critics argue that the ambiguity of this term opens the door for judges to interpret a child's best interest with bias. It allows for pretextual racism, which is racism that doesn't initially appear as such. Basically, opponents of this best interest rule argue that pretextual racism goes unchecked when we have a vague notion of a child's best interest. It allows a judge or someone else to bring in their own cultural values and bias into the equation when determining the level of family intervention that should be applied to a case. And frankly, I tend to agree. Most people don't recognize their own bias, myself included. So allowing legal ambiguity is an excellent way for unchecked bias to disproportionately harm families who are poor and or people of color. One of my favorite passages of the Bible is Micah 6.8 and it goes a little something like this. He has shown you, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Doing justice requires us to pay attention. It means we pay attention to those who are hurting even when they don't look like us, sound like us, smell like us, worship like us. You get the idea. It means we recognize the ways that our lifestyles and decisions might be contributing to the harm that is befalling someone else. To love kindness means to take offense when families are unfairly targeted and torn apart. Families are the fabric of our society and the bedrock of every culture, so an attack on the family is an attack on our communities, and it's communities of color that are most often under siege. Walking humbly with God means we allow our eyes and hearts to be opened and repent of our role in this evil. Then it means we take the time to slow down and discern how to live in a way that undoes the systemic racism that is woven into every thread of our republic. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Friends, that is our mandate. And regardless of your interpretive lens, I'm pretty sure caring about families being torn apart unjustly due to systemic racism fits within that mandate. So what would it take to keep our families together? Well, there are a few things that we can do. First, we can increase our cultural competency training for social workers, lawyers, and judges involved in the foster care system. If I'm honest, though, I'll tell you that I'm still skeptical of most cultural competency trainings. Somehow people leave those trainings just as biased or racist as when they went in. But perhaps they're still a good first step. I think an even better step, though, would be to have anyone involved in the foster care system to undergo anti-racism training once every three to five years. Anti-racism training tends to be more pointed and calls out systemic racism in its many forms, in addition to helping people recognize the beauty in racial and cultural differences. Secondly, we can take a more significant shift towards policies that prioritize family support rather than the removal of children from their homes. Our default can't be removing children from their families unless a child's life is in danger. We've all heard the tragic stories of children who should have been removed but weren't and ultimately lost their lives. So hear me when I say, we definitely need to remove children from homes in which they are in danger. I've lived in such a home. I know exactly what that feels like. I've known others who have as well, so I would never suggest we take that off the table. What I am saying, though, is that when it comes to black and native families, and really black and brown families in general, we're doing too much. We have to emphasize in-home support for families more frequently, which means we need more funding for those services. We also need to direct additional funds to kinship care, which is frequently the shadowy side of the foster system that no one wants to talk about. Thirdly, we can implement more detailed and culturally defined guidelines for what constitutes a child's best interest. This will ensure less ambiguity about when removal is the best option for a child. Finally, we have to change the way foster care is funded so that in-home family intervention services are funded at the same or greater rates than federally out-of-home foster services. That isn't currently the case, which means it's more cost-effective for state governments to focus on out-of-home foster care, thus incentivizing removal. Okay, so we've unpacked a lot today. We've touched on the racial disparities for Black and Native families. The poor outcomes associated with foster youth, such as higher incarceration rates, and the complex web of players that make up this foster system. But we haven't touched on the rush to adoption, which often leaves children in the lurch in hopes of getting them off the taxpayer's dime. We've neglected to mention the hidden foster care system, which pressures family members to take in children removed from their parents, but fails to provide additional funding for them. And there is a literal crisis of aged-out foster youth who no longer qualify for foster care services or funding, but have nowhere else to go and little prospects to fall back on, so they end up on the street or in jail. I could also discuss the tragedy of children not being removed when they should be, or the rush to reunite families at the expense of a child's safety. I've seen and heard of this far too often. I told you from the beginning, there is so much to unpack here, and we've only scratched the surface. There are a lot of good people in the foster care system who believe they're doing what's right or who are at least doing the best they can. Unfortunately, the system isn't set up for their best to be good enough. As I stated in the first episode of this podcast, my story is the exception to the rule. I have no doubt that I needed to be removed from my parents' custody and I landed in a good situation with a community that cared about me. But I know that that is not the case for far too many, and that's why we're talking about this today. With a shift in focus and a redirection of resources, maybe, just maybe we can help more families stay together and become the safe places that children need. Or perhaps we can eliminate the systemic racism that removes kids from homes unnecessarily or keeps them separated from their families for far too long. Let me also say this. If you are considering becoming a foster parent, don't let this episode completely discourage you. My hope is that it makes you reflect on your role in these larger systems. The truth is, there may be children who need you to take them in and help them heal for a while. It may also be the case that in doing so, you're participating in the same racist system that has been harming black and brown families for centuries. The truth is complex and often painful. So how do you move forward knowing this? I'm not sure, honestly. I do have a couple thoughts, though. First, I'd say keep researching foster care. Understand the problems plaguing your state so you're knowledgeable going in. Commit to experiencing anti-racism training and read about the experiences of foster youth and transracial adoptees. Those will be very illuminating for you. It'll also help you understand what your future foster children might be experiencing, especially if you're white. Learn about trauma. I cannot say this enough. If you don't have a basic understanding of how trauma affects the brain and body, you may end up causing more harm than you do healing. Read The Body Keeps the Score as a starting point. Go to counseling yourself. Listen to podcasts about the impacts of trauma on child and adolescent development. You've got to understand this. Otherwise, you'll be lost at sea. Finally, ask yourself why. Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to become a foster parent? And God told me to is not a good enough answer. Dig deeper. If God really told you to, God will also provide more understanding for you. Sometimes we fall back on God's voice instead of listening to understand our own. So my challenge isn't about ignoring God. But rather, it's about asking you to get in touch with yourself. What would it take to keep our families together? Frankly, it's going to take a lot, but I promise you, it's worth it. Families belong together and children deserve to be safe, so let's get to work. Thank you for listening to the What Would It Take podcast. To view the source material for this episode, check out the show notes. If you'd like to find more great content from Anabaptist World, visit anabaptistworld.org. And if you want to learn more about me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Benjamin J. Tapper.